God, thank you for the many ways that we have worshipped you thus far this morning. We ask that now as we sit under the preaching of your word, Lord, that you would give us really the very things that we have prayed, that we have just sung about. Give us a humility. Give us ears to ear and eyes to see. God, that it would all be for your glory, not of our own. We don't study your word to figure out how to make our own lives better. We don't study your word to try to figure out how to remove issues from our lives, but so that we would learn about our great God, and then in turn, how we can worship you with our lives. So we ask, Lord, that as we study your word, that you would do that work in us, even this morning, and get that, God, you would help me to be clear and bold and be out of the way of the text this morning, and that you would do what only your spirit can do, and that is bring your word from the ears and the mind to the heart and cause us to live differently as we leave from here. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again, and uh, go ahead and open up your Bible to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Just a a side note, I'm... uh, uh, just came back from Shepherd's Conference this past week, and Shepherd's Conference, uh, it's a conference for pastors out in California uh, at Grace Community Church, the ministry of John MacArthur, and uh, Shepherd's Conference in a lot of ways uh, feels like a kind of a grand reunion between different pastors and uh, co-laborers together, and uh, as, as in any good reunion, uh, what happens all over, over and over and over is you're updating people on what the Lord is doing and, and how you're doing it all. And so this past week I had much and many opportunities to uh, really just share my own gratitude to, uh, uh, to the Lord and, and, and express that to others uh, for this very church, for you all and for the work that the Lord is doing here. So uh, to the members of Grace Bible Church, thank you so much for uh, uh, really just making it a joy to serve here and uh, the, the way you minister to me and my family, and for all of you that uh, have been coming and, and are even here this morning, <clears throat> just know that uh, we, we rest in and strive to just be faithful to what the Lord has called us to do and, and let him do the rest. And so um, thank you for being a part of that. Excuse me. All right, well, uh, James chapter 4, uh, and I want to go ahead and read from verse 1 again. And take us all the way through verse 10 as we uh, just start to enter in this final section of, of, uh, of what we have been looking at on this uh, expose, if you will, of self-idolatry. So follow along with me as I read, starting at James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. As we've been working through these verses, you may remember that kind of the overarching umbrella and and theme for this and in how um, we are understanding this is really James exposing self-idolatry, and he's doing this in three uh, different parts. The first was the destructive path of self-idolatry, destructive and insatiable and self-deceptive, describing uh, self-idolatry itself and uh, the the very thing that we are doing when we sin, the very thing that we're doing when we get into fights and quarrels with one another. We are idolizing ourselves and we realize, wait a minute, someone else is not worshiping us, right? They're getting in the way of worshiping myself. And so we fight and we quarrel, quarrel and and uh, we respond in sinful ways. But as we studied, that's not the worst of it. Right? The offense is not ultimately a horizontal offense when we sin. Self-idolatry may affect others around us, but the horizontal side of it, the horizontal perspective of it, is not the worst part. What's the worst part? It's the vertical offense. The cosmic offense of self-idolatry is what we studied last week. Right? It's ultimately against God. And we looked at even Psalm 51, where he pleads for the mercy of God, and, and he makes it clear uh, that, that he has sinned against God. And yet, even though we studied that, uh, even though there was, uh, I don't know about you, there, there's uh, much weight that comes along with realizing the, the massive offense against the holy God, uh, there, there's brokenness that happens. Uh, there, there is um, even a helplessness at times that can come when we think about how uh, vast an, of an offense it is against God when we strive to steal His worship. If it stopped there, we rightfully would just be stuck under the weight of that. We would be crushed by it. The weight of guilt. The weight of condemnation. And yet, even when you hear a word like that, condemnation, you should remember what, uh, what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, talking of believers, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question is, if there's this cosmic offense in our self-idolatry against God, then, then how... How is it that we are not under condemnation? See, we talk a lot about justification. We talk a lot about God's grace in justification. And yet, this morning, we're going to hopefully see from the text very clearly that God's grace does not stop at justification. 
But in fact, it continues on through our sanctification. You see, whenever we talk about God's uh, grace and whenever we talk about His mercy, I want to remind you that these are not merely talking about actions that He commits. This is not, hey, look at this list of things that God has done, although we can look at things that God has done and see His character. This is not look at a list of things God has done. It's this is who God is. God said it Himself. Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 34. I want you to look at this passage along with me. And really, it starts at the end of Exodus chapter 33. If you look at verse 15... Actually, let's start at verse 12. There's going to be a longer stretch of passages, but I, I want you to really understand the context of what's happening here. It says, Moses said to the Lord, in verse 12 of Exodus 33, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight... Please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Remember, he's pleading with God here. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are a distinct so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth notice just as a side note what made made Israel distinct the fact that God was with them And the Lord said to Moses this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name Moses said please Show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Also a side note, remember remember what God just said there next time you find yourself singing along to the radio for God to show you his glory and his face. You may not, you may not survive that one. Uh, verse, uh, so, so that's the setting here, right? G- uh, Moses has asked his glory. He says, you cannot see my full glory and live, but I will pass you by. And he says, I will, uh, and he'll proclaim before you my name. Now, chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there 
to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses, notice Moses' response to hearing this from God and just the backside of God's glory passing. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. That is who God is. He is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And He is just and will punish sin. And so when we think about how it is that we are not crushed under the weight of our condemnation, the weight of our guilt, it doesn't come back to something that we do. It doesn't come to... We, we don't... Uh, we're not saved by grace, unmerited favor, having done nothing, and then God says, well, good luck trying to maintain this on your own. No. He is gracious, and He maintains His grace and mercy in the process. And so the, the third part of this expose on self-idolatry in verses 1-10 through 10 is the gracious solution to self-idolatry. It is rooted in His grace and His graciousness. See, your sanctification, the same as your justification, is not deserved. We have an active part. I don't want you to hear any of this wrong because uh, in the, the second, we're going to look at this in two parts this morning and I'll get to that in a second, but the, the, latter, half, the, the, the latter half of these verses make it very clear that we have an active part. We're going to look at, and this is actually going to be next week, ten imperatives, ten commands that James makes clear is our part in our repentance, in our sanctification as we are fighting sin and putting that to death. And yet, it is only possible because of God's grace. It is only possible because of God's grace. We, we, we have no right to demand that God forgive us our sins. Well, we can grovel all we want. We can be as humble as we want. And if God were not gracious in sanctification, we would have no right to demand that He forgive us at all. It's a work of His grace. We have no right to demand that He make us more like Christ. It's a work of His grace. It's a gracious gift. And we even see the balance of 
those two parts of our responsibility and God's work in our sanctification in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what Philippians 2.12 and 13 say, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We see the purpose of it, right? For his good pleasure. And so even just as an aside, as we're thinking through, why would God even be gracious toward us? Why would God even make us more like his son? Again, it is not so that your life goes well. It is for his good pleasure. It pleases him. It brings him glory. And thankfully, he's a good God who, uh, who, who uh, when something brings him glory, when something uh, uh, exalts him, when something brings him good pleasure, then it is also good for those who are, who are worshiping him, right? Because we live in his good and perfect world. And so we have an active part in this, but God's grace, his undeserved favor, is a a necessary part of our sanctification, necessary thing to understand our sanctification. And I'm using a couple terms here, right? Justification, sanctification, just very, very, very briefly, when we talk about justification, justification, we're talking about uh, the state of being declared righteous before God. And when we talk about sanctification, we are now talking about not a single point in time, but a process of being made holy, a process of being made more like Christ. When you think about justification, that's a single point in time. And you think about our glorification, which is at the end of our lives, when either Jesus returns or he calls us to be with him, that's a single point in time, glorification. But in between that, from the moment of your spiritual birth until your physical death, God is sanctifying you as his child. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is sanctification. That is the process of sanctification. Romans chapter 6, verse 19 says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And so you could almost say that before Christ, before you were justified, you were uh, still in a process, but it was, become, it was the process of becoming more and more lawless, living in slavery to your sin. And yet on the other side of your justification, we are becoming more and more like Christ as we are slaves to righteousness. This process is also uh, brought up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, 
because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, justification, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so as the first fruits of those who are saved, as those who would um, uh, uh, represent Christ, the, what people see, what people can uh, observe, the fruit of someone's life is in the sanctification process. That's a work that the Spirit is doing. Also, when you think about uh, sanctification, 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 2 should also come to mind, reminding us this is uh, an act of the, the Spirit. According, it says 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. And so what is the gracious solution to self-idolatry? Well, the, the simplest answer is, it is sanctification. What is the solution to your sin? It's your sanctification. You think of Romans chapter 13, verse 14, where he talks about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's your sanctification. Next time you think about repentance, think sanctification. You are being made more like Christ through that process. And so, in this gracious solution of sanctification to our self-idolatry, we're going to see in these verses two principles of sanctification. Two principles of sanctification. First is God will bestow His grace. That's what we're going to spend the remainder, remainder of our time on this morning. And the second is you must submit your heart. So the first, just like our salvation, falls on the shoulders of God. God will bestow His grace. And I, and I hope by the time we're done with our time here this morning that uh, that we won't only, as, as, as uh, good reformed men and women, we won't only think about grace in the context of our justification, but that we would truly think about grace in the context also of our sanctification. So look with me at verse 6 again. James writes, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says, but he gives more grace. Kind of like what we were talking about with Exodus chapter 34. This is all predicated on the very character of God. Listen to what James already told us about the character of God in James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the giver, <clears throat> excuse me, God is the giver of good gifts. In verse 18 of chapter 1, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, God's character is what drives his sovereign plan of salvation. God's character is what drives his sovereign plan of sanctification. It's because of who he is. James says, but he gives more grace. You see, God's character, in line with his sovereign plan, means that he intervenes. God's character, in line with his sovereign plan, means that he intervenes. Why do I say that? Well, we're going to look at a few different passages here, but first we're going to look at it in the context of our justification and then our sanctification where there are two words that are butted up against each other that are some of the most profound words that you will find in your Bible, and that is, but God. Here it says, but he, referring to God, but that is, but God. And, and if, I'm sure if I were to ask, when you hear that, where is the first place you would go, where would it be? Ephesians, right? Ephesians chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, And if it were to stop there, it would be a detrimental state of humanity for each and every one of us in our hearts. And yet it goes on to say in verse 4, what? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see how profound those words are? In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 And if we back up a little bit, verse 24, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And this may not say, but God, but it refers to God intervening with uh, with His righteous plan. It says in verse 21, But now... So no longer the law that comes that that brings about the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Hopefully it's clear to you that God in His sovereign plan 
in line with his character, it means that he intervenes. But God. And yet that, those two words are not only beautiful in the context of our justification, but they are beautiful and we should cling to them in the context of our sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, even specifically talking about the, the building of the church. And we know the only way that the church is built is His people being saved and then sanctified. In chapter 3, verse 5, says, What then is Apollos? Or, or what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Do you see how important that is? Uh, Apollos could have gone out and shared the gospel. Paul could have gone out and shared the gospel. All of the disciples could have gone out and shared the gospel. And yet if God would have not sovereignly intervened, it would all be dead in its tracks. You could read your Bible till you are blue in the face. And yet if God, it does not intervene. You are dead in your tracks. You could say you hate your sin. You could see how ugly sin is and how ugly the consequences of your sin is. And yet if God does not intervene, you are dead in your tracks. But God. In James chapter 4, verse 6, our text that we are focusing on this morning, And let me read again from verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? So you have this God who you are waging war against because you want your way. You want to make yourself an, a friend with the world, making yourself an enemy with God, and you have a Spirit of God dwelling in you because you are a believer, and He is jealous over His people. If it were to stop there, that would be a horrible situation. We would be stuck under the weight of that, and yet once again, God in His sovereign character and, and His sovereign plan intervenes, but He gives more Grace. Here he goes again. God gives more grace. He bestows yet another good gift to us. The tense of this verb is a present tense verb here. And it's actually the same tense that we find in verse 5 where it says he yearns jealously. This is actively present. He is yearning for His glory is matched by His bestowing of grace. And don't miss that. Just as actively God yearns for His glory in the lives of His people, He is just as actively, presently bestowing the gift of grace upon those people. There's an expression of His generosity. And it's abundant. He says, he, but He gives more grace. This exceeds that which came before. 
It's ongoing in its quantity. But He gives more grace. Listen to this definition just so we don't suppose that we all uh, uh, have a a full understanding of grace. I found this to be a very uh, helpful understanding just in in the, the simplest of senses of what grace is, how we would define it. This comes from a Greek lexicon that that used often in my study. It says, The action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory. The action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory. Romans 3.24 that we already read talks of it as a gift. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and we're going to spend a good amount of time in First Peter uh, a little bit later, but First uh, Peter chapter five, verse 10 says this: "And after you have suffered a little while, and then notice how he, uh, the, how he labels God, the God of all grace." who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The the context of that is Christian living, of the sanctification process itself, the God of all grace. And so back in James chapter 4, he says, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, again, whenever you read that word therefore, remember there's an implication coming. You could say because of this, uh, because God will give more grace, it says, that means Scripture is coming. It means that he's about to quote some Scripture. And before we even get to the Scripture itself, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. I found, I found this to be a very uh, interesting parallel here, and, and maybe this will uh, help uh, set the stage for us for the Scripture we are about to read that um, James is quoting here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm sure just like uh, each and every one of you, the more and more you, you find yourself basking in truth in Scripture, the more and more you realize how consistent the message is and how much they are all saying the same thing. Listen as I read verses uh, uh, 7 and 8 of, uh, of uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and think about our text for this morning. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. The gifts themselves that Paul is talking about there in Ephesians chapter 4, he goes on to explain in verse 11, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, he, he is not talking specifically about the same thing, but we, we see the same pattern, uh, the, the same aspect of God's character on display here of Him being the gracious uh, giver of gifts. And again, what is the, the purpose of all of that? When we think about the equipping of the saints, 
When we think about the saints being edified and, and, and the work of the ministry, we are talking about, once again, the sanctification process. Us being made more like Christ. That's what he goes on to say in verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, that's sanctification language, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see that same terminology there in verse 8. Therefore it says, in James chapter 4, therefore it says, in James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, but grace was given in James chapter, in, sorry, in Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given in James 4, 6, but he gives more grace in Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore it says, and goes on to say he gives gifts. James chapter 4, verse 6, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see the consistent character of God and Him being a gracious giver of gifts. God's grace is a critical gift. It's not a gift that we can opt out of. It's not a gift that we can go without. It's a critical gift. And yet... There is a stipulation. There is a stipulation that James talks about here when it comes to our sanctification. You see, we, we cannot get in, we cannot hinder or slow down our justification. That, that is a single point in time. That is a divine act of God in His sovereign plan. And yet, when we talk about our sanctification... We, we, there are plenty of times that we can get in the way of that and God then disciplines us. It's not that He doesn't sanctify us. It's not that we stop the plan of God. But in our sin, we can create a distance from God that James goes on to even talk about here and refer to in this quoted scripture. James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Different than verse 5, where we don't have a specific scripture that James is quoting there, here in verse 6, we know where it is that he's quoting from. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Proverbs 3, verse 34 says this, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Just as a reminder, a, a quick bibliology reminder, the Old Testament, primarily written in Hebrew, some Aramaic, primarily written in Hebrew. However, uh, Oftentimes, whenever passages, not always, but uh, it happens often in the New Testament, whenever passages are uh, quoted from the Old Testament, it's not the Hebrew Old Testament that they're referring to. Oftentimes, they're referring to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that's called the Septuagint. This is one of those cases. That's why you don't hear the exact same wording as we hear in, uh, in James chapter 4, but that is, uh, if you look at the Septuagint, it is more in line with what James is quoting there. 
But it's not just in Proverbs 3.34. As I mentioned, whenever we are studying the Word of God, um, there is... There are repeated themes all throughout. They're all giving the same message. Listen to Psalm 138, verse 6. It says, for, the, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. You hear that same, uh, that, that same motif there. James isn't the only one to quote this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Peter uh, quotes this as well, and I want to read some of the verses surrounding it. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You can hear how Peter is pulling it into the category in the context of even healthy church. In the context of right before this, he was addressing elders who are to be giving oversight, shepherding the flock of God among them. And then in turn, he talks to the church of making sure that there is humility toward one another. And he reminds them that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he goes on to say... And think of James chapter 4, what we have been studying and are in right now. As I read these verses here, James chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. That should sound familiar. Listen to how James ends this section in James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Does that sound familiar? So he says, he quotes this verse God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Just to spend a little bit of time on what it is that this is saying here. When it says God opposes, it means that God is actively resisting something. It doesn't mean that it just bothers him. It doesn't mean that we, um, that, that we are just creating distance between us and God. And God is just sitting there waiting, hoping that you'll return as, as, a, as a, 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 a pitiful one, just waiting for someone to show him attention and return to him. No, it says God opposes, resists the proud, those who are arrogant and haughty. This is descriptive even of those who are rejecting God in Luke chapter 1, verses 50 through 52. I want to go ahead and read that for you. Luke chapter 1. This is found within uh, what's called the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise. Luke chapter 1. says, and, uh, starting at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. See, God is actively against those who are proud, those who are arrogant. Listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. 
describing, again, those who reject God, and even in the context of a warning. Starting at verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. See, the believer is never to be found being proud. The believer is never to be found being arrogant, lest God resist us. See, remember the context here. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to those uh, who are saved, those who are justified. He's talking to those who are recipients of God's grace in justification and now grace in sanctification. He just said, but he gives more grace. And now he says, God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. You see, lest we think that we can live however we want, that we can walk around living proud and, and arrogant around the, those around us and think, well, justified by grace, undeserved favor, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good Calvinist, once saved, always saved, right? I can live however I want. These are sobering realities to us that we are to live with humility before God and that God resists the proud. He opposes the proud. And yet, as James said, notice again the giving language here. He said earlier, but he gives more grace. Now he says, but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. This is the more grace that James was just talking about here. The, the ongoing grace. And it is to those who are humble before God. As we are sanctified by grace that demands a humility. You see, we, we never... If you're a Christian here this morning... Please know you never have a reason to be boastful or haughty or proud. Never. That's in the context of looking at the world around you. And sometimes it's easier, right? You see, sometimes it's really easy, again, to the point of thinking about grace and our justification. Sometimes it's really easy to look at the world around us, those who are lost, and think, oh, I have nothing to be proud of because I was saved by grace alone. But then you come into church, then you go into your home, and you look at other believers around you, and arrogance starts to seep in. Well, they're not as sanctified as I am. Look at their sin. Look at the sin they keep going back to. And we start to get a little haughty, a little arrogant. I don't do that. I'm good. I, I live according to how God says I'm to live. And very quickly, we start to just build ourselves up. And we look at our sanctification process. And we've built an altar to ourselves. And said, look at what I have done. 
That is sin before God. God opposes that. But he gives grace to the humble. We are never to compare our own godliness with the godliness of others. That is not what we are called to do. Ever. That will only lead to us being impatient with those around us. That will only lead us to be impatient with others as they are fighting their sin. Think about, think about what, what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, and then these are some of the most troubling words. This, this is one of the biggest pebbles in the shoe to any of us that want to stand firmly on truth and see righteousness around us, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Notice the, the, the two things that, Jay, that Paul says there that in our minds there is this, this almost never-ending tension in our hearts. How do we both patiently endure evil while correcting our opponents with gentleness? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I think the answer to that is be humble. How do you strike the balance of that? Be humble. Recognize that you still have evil in your own life that God is rooting out of you. And that God is being gentle toward you in. We even think of something like the church discipline process. Uh, th that's not something we kind of hold in our back pockets as we're watching others sin and just waiting like, oh, it's been a little while now. You still have that sin in your life. Ready to grab a couple other people and come alongside. No, that process is to be done in brokenness over someone else being captivated and caught by their sin. It's to call the sheep who is stuck in the thicket out of that. That is the purpose of that. And, and I, have, I have sadly seen uh, the, the process of church discipline take place a number of times in our sending church in Jacksonville. And when I tell you the tears that have been shed by the men and women of that church and the elders of that church throughout some, some in the process of that months and months and months and some even years and years as you're watching someone's life and seeing is there true repentance seems like it. Oh, no, there's not true repentance to the point of having to mention someone's name before the church that they are caught in their sin and unrepentant in their sin. Uh, that is the only tone in which that process should ever be done. That is the only tone through which we should view the sin of others. A brokenness. A brokenness over the fact that God is not receiving glory through this person's obedience and through the fact that this person is running toward their sin, toward darkness, so much so that it is seeming to be evident that they are not a child of God. That is the only way we should view one another's sin, never with impatience, never with arrogance or pride or haughtiness. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is the first part of 
this gracious solution to self-idolatry. That the, the, first, the first principle of our sanctification is that God will bestow His grace. And you could even say God must bestow His grace in order for this to even happen. But I want to be very clear. The reason why I didn't put God must bestow His grace is because the, the context of this is God's loving, benevolent uh, uh, graciousness and the gift that He has said that He will give. So we don't demand it of God, but we know that apart from His grace, not a single man or woman in this room would be sanctified, would be growing in their sanctification. And if you're not a Christian here with us this morning, then know that apart from God's grace, there is absolutely no way that you can ever be found right before God. There is no way you can ever be justified before God. And if you are thinking that you are, are pulling all your good deeds together and that you're living a good enough life that you can one day stand before God and say, God, look at what I have done. Accept me into eternal life. Forgive me of my sins. It will never amount to even a fraction of what uh, of, of the righteousness that you need to stand before God, because His standard is perfection. It's perfection, and only one has met that standard: Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the very one who hung on the cross, and when the nails were driven through His hands. The way that Paul describes it in a very uh, picturesque way is that your record of debt, along with all its legal demands, was nailed to the cross. If you're an unbeliever, your record of debt, along with all its legal demands, can be canceled, nailed to the cross of Christ. Grace. Undeserved favor. Unmerited favor. Completely. And solely, that's the good news of the gospel. And, 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 and I say this with, with brokenness and a weightiness. If you are rejecting that, if you are rejecting Jesus, who is the only way to the Father, then you will still stand before Jesus one day, but He will not be your Savior. He will be your judge. And the, the penalty is eternal damnation under the wrath of God in hell. But know that His grace is extended for all who would believe in Jesus Christ, place their faith in Him for their salvation. That is the good news of the gospel. I would love to talk with you more after if you have any questions about that. Uh, and I know that others here would as well. But God's grace was not just a justification. It continues on through our sanctification the first necessary principle, it is a work of God's grace. And second will be next week, we must submit and come humbly and obediently before God. And next week we're going to spend time in these uh, ten imperatives, these, these ten uh, commands that really uh, make up the second principle of our sanctification, that we must submit our hearts. Let's pray. God, you are such a good God. How, how can we come to you with anything but praise? How could we come to you with anything with worship? And as I was reminded a few weeks ago by a, a pastor down in Florida, the, the, the greatest way that we can worship you, the pinnacle of our worship, 
is our obedience to you. And so we ask, Lord, that we would live lives of worship, of obedience before you, not to earn your favor that, that was done through Christ's righteousness, his death on the cross, but in light of your grace toward us, in light of your, the, the life that you have given us, in light of the new hearts that you have given us, help us, Lord, to put our sin to death. Lord, we, we don't talk of grace in sanctification, uh, to, to have a wrong view that we can just live however we want and live as the world and just rest in, in, in undeserved favor from you. As we're going to be reminded of next week, that is not the case at all. As we were reminded of from your word this morning, if that is the stance and posture we have before you, we are being nothing but proud and arrogant, and you oppose, resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So Lord, we ask that you would give us humble hearts. Let us not wait until this next week as we continue to study this to, to seek forgiveness from you to humble our hearts before you to put haughtiness and, and proud and, and pride to death in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we, we know that ultimately sin is against you, and yet there, there is the horizontal reality of our sin affecting those around us and, and our, our sin um, uh, truly being aimed even at those around us. So I ask, Lord, that you would, whether it's today or throughout this week, Help us, Lord, to reconcile relationships, to seek forgiveness from those we have sinned against. Lord, to live humble lives before you. Forgive us, Lord, for how often we judge those around us. Those especially that are closest to us, that we have the most view into their sanctification process, the most, the most view into their sin, and the most view into the, the, the work of rooting out that sin that you are doing. Forgive us for how often we, we judge, for how often, Lord, we compare our own godliness and process with those around us for thinking that it's a work that we have done. We know it's a work of your grace and yours alone. Lord, thank you that you have promised to complete the work that you have started. And you are the non-lying God, which means you will complete the work you have started in us. So we thank you we long to see your glory in our lives individually and even as a church. Lord, that we would be a light to this lost and dying world around us. In the name of Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior, we pray. Amen.